in some ways Jesus takes sides in some of the um, tensions and debates within the pages of scripture itself that's right um, and so while other Christians might try to use these texts to try to say be like Solomon or something mm-hmm. um, that is not what Jesus is doing at all Dr. Drew thanks for your time mate I'm yes. very appreciative and uh, excited that we get this time together the first question I like to ask is more biographical and it's simply when do you first remember encountering scripture is there an incident in particular or a set of uh impressions or yeah um there probably is like no one singular moment that i that comes to mind but there's a few like early childhood memories that i have Hmm. um one is my dad would gather us i remember as children like we would gather around his bed (laughs) in the morning and and he would lead us i think he was trying to like teach us how to read scripture Hmm. um and i think he wanted us to be comfortable with reading scripture um and so he would just kind of i don't remember what we were reading what it was about (laughs) but i remember just that experience of kind of moving through every morning before school um that we would um, do that at least that was like through like elementary school i remember yeah. that practice being a part of our family um and i do think there was in doing that as a family there was something that it became more familiar and more accessible something i could do on my own yeah um, wow. because of that um the other thing that comes to mind is so my grandfather was a pretty well-known uh, preacher and hmm. pastor in philly and so he was my first pastor. Wow. <laughs> and so, and he was a great preacher. So just the preached word, um, I have memories of sitting and visualizing my grandfather preaching and just a dynamic preacher yeah. that he was. And so again... In Philadelphia? This was in Philly, uh-huh. yeah. And I can't, again, remember any specific thing at that point, but just the kind of sense. He did have a presence about him. Yeah. Right? So the, there was this kind of all almost of the preached word um, at that time. And were the Hart family always found in a certain section of the pews? Were there, was there a sense? No, that, our no? church wasn't quite, you know, there's some churches like that. Our uh-huh. church wasn't, had kind of resisted some of those right. practices that was just kind of, but, um, so there wasn't any like special seating and stuff mm. like that. And for good and for bad, it had pushed against some, I'd say they lost some good black church practices right? because I think, but they were trying to connect um more with folks who had not been churched i mean mm. i think that was you know a big spirit of of that community at that time and so they pushed against some of the kind of traditional black church practices um in that sense but yeah so but i would have i remember sitting there looking up seeing yeah. my grandfather you know probably pointing or something <laughs> you know <laughs> it's a very dynamic preacher yeah. and um and hearing the word and kind of getting captivated in the moments yeah. you know and what particular part of the church did you grow up in yeah so it was a non-denominational church mm. it had more baptist black baptists like flavor overall mm-hmm. in terms of like the songs and music yeah um but it wasn't affiliated with um any denomination there were some other um church like we call them assemblies throughout mm-hmm. philly and a few other places that we kind of associated with in terms of relationship yeah uh, but not it wasn't a denomination that we were a part of no nice. yeah. and 
those bedside early Bible studies with, with dad before school and uh, uh, sitting under your grandfather's, um, uh, sounds like captivating preaching. Yeah. What was your experience and encounter with scripture something that was liberating or oppressive? Or would you use other language for... Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, so if you had asked me at the time, I probably would have said liberating. Right. At the time, um, I would have probably just said it was liberating. It was this freeing experience. Um, it was encountering God. It was accepting God into my life mm. and being aware of God in you know, the presence of God in your life. You know, I think there was a liberating sense to it um, at the time. It's tough because I look back and there's things that I'm like, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a little suspicious now of the kind of, you know, I guess, you know, you all know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the costless discipleship, the hmm. accept Jesus into your hearts and you're sure you're going to heaven. And that was like the message, you right. know, I mean, that was the only thing that was taught, but that was a part of it. And I see how at least those aspects can contribute to a lot of oppressive realities. Yes. Um, um, this kind of, you don't have to follow Jesus. Right. And so, I, but there were, but I think there was a lot more going on. There was a pretty, some, there was some very perceptive ways mm. in which the word preached was liberating mm. and other ways in which, I mean, it was also very patriarchal, I right? Mean, no women preachers, no women right. in, in any kind of significant leadership position in church. Right. Um, so there were things that I were over my head that I was even thinking about that were oppressive. that were not necessarily impacting me directly. Yes. Um, so <laughs> oppressive within these lanes <laughs> yeah, right, like, right, right. Like, and liberating and in these other ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been asking is that what has been your experience from those early uh, ways of encountering scripture to how you encounter now? What was the journey between those two points? So you're a professor here at Messiah College and we're sitting in your office and we're surrounded by. Um, black liberation theology and uh, Anabaptist uh, diversity and uh, some sociology and a whole bunch of other interesting things. What what has been the journey between that, that kid sitting under granddad's preaching uh, to um, being Dr. Hart here at Messiah? Yeah. Um, ironically, my journey started here at Messiah. I was an really? undergrad at Messiah College um, was here 2000 to 2004. Wow. And I was actually a biblical studies major. Huh. Um, so clearly something had <laughs> stuck in me that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, there were very few biblical studies majors on campus at that time. Right. I think it was like three or four of us graduate. You know, most people are engineers and, um, and nurses and all the other stuff. But um, yeah, so I, I, I came here um, wanting to study the Bible more. Um, and I was stretched beyond ways that I knew <laughs> I could be stretched, right? Mm. Asking questions about the Bible um, that I never knew were questions to ask. Um, and and in some ways, you know, my, my, I guess people use the language of deconstruction and construction. My, mm -hmm. my whole framework of the Bible had to get deconstructed in some ways. 
and reconstructed and put back together. Um, and some of the challenges that I, in that journey from where I was to today was wrestling with just the diversity of interpretations that it were out there. Mm. They were just endless, right? Yeah. And then not only were there endless interpretations, but that they have social impact. Yes. Right. Um, that, that people have used the Bible and weaponized it. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you can't talk about my ancestors being enslaved and genocide of Native Americans without also wrestling with um, the way that the Bible has been interpreted and weaponized. Mm. Um, and so for me, um, that was both devastating on one hand and also it just sent me on this journey. Yeah. Um, and it, it had me... I would say taking the Bible seriously for the first time in some sense, hmm. wrestling with what was actually within its pages, right? Hmm. Um, wanting to know, is there a way to read the Bible <laughs> that isn't justifying all these things um, yeah. in terms of oppressions and, and violence? And so, yeah, that, that it was a slow process, but I mean, I, I eventually emerged on the other side kind of, with, I mean, I guess the easiest, more simple, overly simplistic ways to call it a Jesus hermeneutic that helped yeah. me kind of navigate some of that. Uh, but I'd also say, like, I mean, I've, I think, um, taking more seriously the broader Black church tradition, mm -hmm. and particularly within that, the Black prophetic tradition, yes. and thinking about how has Scripture been interpreted through that tradition has been helpful, and um, just. It was there maybe some growing up, but a much more stronger emphasis of this liberating God mm. um, that's at the heart of Israel's story and that is also fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And then also um, eventually, slowly, I was a little hesitant, but slowly started um, listening a little more to some of these Anabaptists and how they were engaging scripture as well. Mm. Um, and just this idea of discipleship. Um, really captivated me in community and reading scripture yeah. in, in community together, right? And how important that was. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there was this journey that I was on that I was able to eventually grab some stuff also from my past, right? Um, that were really meaningful as well as, you know, uh, eat the meat and spit out the bones and kind yeah. of, kind of work for something that seemed a little bit more authentic for me in my journey as well as I kind of journey. And it was really, I mean, I could overemphasize it as like my journey, um, as like a, some lone ranger, hmm. but it was, it really is me in dialogue with other communities and traditions. Yes. Um, and that there were more liberating ways to read scripture already existent yeah. that I just, um, needed to get in, in connection with and be formed by. Yeah. And this might sound weird as some melanin challenge mate from the land down under, um, but part of my excitement in finding you and your work was bringing these two traditions together yeah. that had been so part of my own story, even though I'd only ever encountered them on pages. Like, w yeah. we have literally, I think, one Mennonite church in Australia, and it's on <laughs> the other side of the country. Um, uh, my... In encounter with the black church tradition had been so instrumental to my mum's conversion, which is a, another story, uh, but also my childhood and my introduction to what Christianity was, that Martin Luther King was, um, and, and not just the MLK of, of 63 in DC, but right. all of MLK's witness was something that was 
in the air and talked about, and this is what it is to be a Christian. And you've brought those two things together in ways that um, I think a lot of people are finding exciting. Yeah. And you even have a term for um, your your uh, hybrid cocktail of these two beautiful traditions. Would you break down, I guess, two parts? A, what is it that you're, you're calling that, this kind of um, love affair between these two traditions that might surprise some and what the two traditions how they what they share in common and how they differ yeah yeah so i, I like to call it anablactivism is that not the best thing ever? like i mean it's- <laughs> and it's black theology anabaptism and activism yeah um and sometimes people lose sight of that third piece but i think you know um that it's really in living it out in 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 life, right? Lived experience um, that it actually finds. Me. Yeah. So anablactivism is anabaptism, black theology, and activism, um, and it's those three things. All three things trying to take serious um, those theological traditions and on the grounds kind of activism and organizing. Um, I, you know, I, I came upon that in a kind of odd way i guess i um after i finished my undergrad at uh, messiah as a biblical studies one of the things i lamented was how little um, black theology we <laughs> engaged in our department right um we got a little bit but not really much and so mm. i dove into james cone um, mm. on my own just reading actually god of the press was the first yeah. Cone book that i read um and and even though i heard about anabaptism for the first time at messiah i was there were things about it that were compelling but i was like no i'm not anabaptist well then i got hired at um immediately after i graduated at harrisburg brethren christ church which is a multiracial anabaptist congregation in the city um and so i was there and and while i was there i didn't consider myself an anabaptist at all um but afterwards and i moved back to philly um, and I was in my some of my old circles, and I realized that you know these damn Anabaptists got me, right? They <laughs> got me. So I started calling myself an Anabaptist after I had left that community, and then started intentionally reaching out to the Anabaptist community in Philly. Hmm. And in Philadelphia, I considered the best Anabaptist community in the world. Several generations of Black Mennonites, you got mm. Latino Mennonites, Asian—I mean, it's just beautiful—and they wow. actually collaborate together um, interdenominationally. Um, they have these things called Kingdom Builders gatherings, wow. um, and so you sit around the table, and it's not you know all the classic Mennonite last names. It's yeah, it's really a beautiful thing happening there, and so, so it's not just. Gingrich's right, and, and Yoder's, Yoder's <laughs> but there's right. Rodriguez's and Johnson's there yes, as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and so I was kind of working through the significance of these two traditions and and also engaging these communities. And I, it really struck me um, how both of these traditions were born on the underside of ugly Christian, supposedly Christian communities, right? Yeah. Um, or empires even. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so Anabaptism, you know, within the belly of the beast of Europe, right? Um, and they've had to kind of re-navigate and re-articulate who Jesus is. And thinking and reflecting on the kind of Anabaptist formation I gotten from the Harrisburg Brethren Christ Church and thinking about how 
these two traditions were both born on the underside of Western Christendom, and in the yeah. case of the Black Church, also white supremacy, right? Yes. And had so they're responding to these violent, oppressive forms of Christianity that are being imposed upon them, and somehow salvaged <laughs> mm. Christianity, I'd say, right, mm. <laughs> from, from the larger. Um, expressions um, found Jesus in the midst of it, rearticulated Jesus in a viable way and embodied that in their society. Right. Um, And so for Anabaptists, you know, even while violence and war were being um, and church and state and everything were being uh, articulated um, broadly, they nonetheless found this Jesus that put down the sword, right? Mm. Um, and created alternative communities that broke off from the power structures of society. And for the black church, they were um, Africans, right? Enslaved Africans were being told that um, they were cursed, right? The, the Hamitic curse. And they were enslaved and told that, you know, God endorsed this slavery, that they were inferior. Mm. And yet somehow they also encountered uh, a liberating you know, God and mm-hmm. a God that was a Jesus that was a co-sufferer and yes. there with them in hard times. Right. Um, and so that's, I think the beauty of these two traditions in particular, and they're not, it's not exclusive to the only those two. Mm. Um, but, but for me, it was really powerful in re-engaging both Christianity and scripture from that vantage point, yeah. um, learning to, rethink about the beauty of God and what God is doing and delivering presence of God in the worlds from their collective witness. And then helping that shape my own social engagements and interactions with my neighbors and and stuff that's going on in our cities. How how do you, like, uh, as you were speaking, um, two figures that have been important for us, um, you mentioned Jim Cohn, uh, Dr. James Cohn, and um, uh, Uncle Vincent Harding. Yeah. How, how do you, like, they seem to fit well together, but are there points of tension that you found that um, as you have articulated an anaplactivist vision for, f- for action and also for um, engaging the Christian tradition and in great, engaging the Christian scriptures, are there points where it, it has um, uh, ruffled those in either communities or there's been points of friction or has it only been fruitful cross-pollination or yeah um i mean there's no question that i think for a lot of anabaptists um cone never gives the kind of answers they want as relates to violence Right. right um though i actually think he's actually much more thoughtful than people if they'd read a little more carefully and read a wider range um there's more to him um than what people think of james cone yes um but some of that is because in a few of his books he refused to to give him any cookies at all right i mean basically um he he said that's not up for white people to decide and that's for us to decide under this story yes and and he if anything he flipped the conversation said why are you so concerned with these questions so yeah there's ways in which um Anabaptists have been uncomfortable with how James Cone has dealt with the subject of violence because mm. he doesn't give them the answers that he wants. Mm. And especially if the primary vehicle that or primary concern is pacifism, then he's not going <laughs> to give you that answer. Yeah. Um, and so he questions why that is the first question that 
so many white theologians want to ask black folks why the question of violence is being turned against us rather than against the systems that that engage in systemic violence of black people every day. Yeah. Um, however, I mean, if you read broader, I mean, I can't remember which text, but at, at different points, like he does talk about like he he doesn't believe that you can be Christian and engage in retaliation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and he, so I mean, there's ways in which. Now he's not a pacifist, but but he he's also still trying to take seriously um, Jesus's teachings in in real ways that I think people have ignored. Yes, um, and and he's radically even his experience of church is the the radical experience of how do you have this hatred which you're received transformed so it doesn't name you and dictate how you are in the world. That's right. And that for me is far more interesting than doctrinaire pacifism. That's, that, right. that's about that's right. undergoing the transforming power of Calvary's when seen through the resurrection. Right. And uh, I think it actually names the, the, the process of the transfiguration of our own violence rather than here is a set answer that right. is a marker for whether you're in our community right. or not. And that's why I find him so fascinating yeah. and um, challenging and important is the way that he's uh, allowed that church experience in what Arkansas, at Arkansas. A, yeah. African Methodist Episcopal yeah. Church. And yeah, in- incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no question. Um, so, I mean, I always say Anabaptists need to read more James Cone, mm. right? And they, they could be um, that will help them rediscover their Anabaptism. I think yes. in many many meaningful ways. Um, I think Harding. What is interesting about him is, and this was my experience with him personally, was mm. just a patient dialoguer. Mm. Um, so where Cone is now right mm-hmm. um there was there's something also captivating about um vincent harding's patience and dialogue with others and taking people listening telling his story letting you tell your story mm-hmm. um, just really powerful um and so yeah i think there's there are ways in which um now, see, I would say like Vincent Harding is a part of the broader black theological conversation That's already. Right. So yeah. it's not that it needs to be introduced, but I'd say people need to take him seriously. I think mm. people are forgetting about his witness um, and how significant of a person he was. And some of it is because he was behind the scenes. He wasn't always at the forefront. Yeah. Um, but I hope, you know, he's not someone that gets forgotten. And at the same time, even though he spent so one of the interesting factors about his life is that he spent 10 years with the Midnight Church. Yes. Um, so at the time, he pretty much <laughs> got rejected almost. And now, you know, they love to claim him. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, both are problematic. And I think, um, um, but, but I do think um, that he ought to be a source of someone, even um, now, whose words can still resonate and be a challenge for the Anabaptist community because they failed, many of them failed to, in the moment as the freedom movement was happening, right, civil rights movement was going on, failed to engage and live out their Anabaptism to its fullest in that particular time and moments. Mm. And so I think engaging with him could reinvite some conversations on how to engage right now in really faithful ways that actually embody really the heart, I think, of Anabaptism and not just... Um, not just claim it as some historical ancestry or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So what gift uh, from your own journey would you offer 
people who are reading scripture for the first time in wanting to turn the world upside down or are returning to scripture wanting to read it in liberating ways what uh what particular things would you offer others as they open up the scriptures yeah well so piggybacking on what we were just talking about with anabaptism black black theology i would actually say um begin taking seriously christian traditions and communities that have already been reading it liberatively. Yeah. Right? Um, that we don't need to recreate the wheel, um, and that there are really meaningful and powerful ways that other communities have done that already. Um, so that would be my first suggestion, is find those tradi- Christian traditions born on the underside that have read scripture from the underside of society. Mm. Um, join them, right? Uh, read alongside, listen carefully, uh, and allow those uh, hermeneutics... Um, to shape how you engage scripture. Pay attention to what texts are really important to them, right? Mm. Um, what passages and, and what do they bring out about those particular passages? And Professor Hermeneutics is just a fancy university way of saying how we read. Yeah, how we read, how we interpret scripture. That's what mm. we're talking about. Um, and then the other thing which follows from that, which is what I've taken, is um, I, I love that the, it, this is a phrase that comes up both and from some Anabaptists and black theologians, which is take Jesus seriously. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a really helpful way to engage scripture is to take Jesus seriously. Mm. And so, you know, it's not by accident that we have four gospel narratives, mm-hmm. right? Um, they thought it was so important that they four different angles and depictions and portrayals of Jesus' life and different emphases um, ought to be um, engaged with uh for Christians who are seeking to, you know, reside in God. And so I I think that um, figuring out a way how the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus can reshape how we read Scripture. Mm. um, And hopefully it can um, cut off some bad interpretations. Yeah. Right? Because I think that in some ways Jesus takes sides in some of the... um, tensions and debates within the pages of scripture itself that's right um, he, yeah. there's no question that jesus quotes the prophets a lot yeah. right um and, and so we got to ask it doesn't you know, touch joshua right it doesn't touch joshua <laughs> he's not arguing for monarchy right yeah. and so while other christians might try to use these texts to try to say be like solomon or something mm. um that is not what jesus is doing at all mm. and so when we take jesus seriously he can help us kind of not ignore these problem texts, um, but how to engage them and to sometimes question certain texts and and then otherwise um, really emphasizing other ones. And so I I love to see Mm. how does um, the New Testament show us how Jesus engaged scripture also, right? Um, That's something worth doing. Um, And so, I mean, many people call it a Jesus lens of reading scripture, um, that that after you've immersed yourself slowly and transformatively into the birth, life, teachings, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, allow that to um, to shape how you engage Scripture and how mm. you debate with it and argue mm. with it and wrestle with it, right? And, and one of the phenomenal gifts that the pro- prophetic black church um, has blessed my life with is a, a model for not just reading Scripture that way, um, that uh, the the Exodus is a motif through which we understand um, Jesus' life, death, burial, re- resurrection, and ascension. But th- that those two, the Jesus lens 
lens through the Exodus is a way of reading society. Absolutely. It's, it's a way of actually starting to have a, a hermeneutics of a, a community that reads the larger context right. that you're in. Um, I, I mean, because you don't have to look further than the TV in this nation to see there's a lot of God talk right. um, and uh, religion to justify things that are like a really anti the reign of God. I thought I'd take a little bit of digression here to uh, discuss some concerns raised by our church friends about separation of families. Many of the criticisms raised in recent days are not fair, not logical, and some are contrary to plain law. First, illegal entry into the United States is a crime. It should be, it must be, if you're going to have a legal system and have any limits whatsoever. Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. If you violate the law, you subject yourself to prosecution. And I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans uh, 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. That's, that's really confronting um, uh, for, for me as a visitor uh, because... Americans are a lot more, you know, re- religious than us <laughs> pagan Aussies. Um, and in other ways, we, we don't dress up our brutality yeah. with Bible verses in, right. in the same. What, what's it like living in the shadow of that? Um, and what does it mean to take this Jesus lens to a society in which it does that? Yeah, I mean, For me, you know, there's a lot of shock by some people about, like, what's going on today. But I'm like, for some of us, we've been living this for centuries. 400 years. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, you go back to Frederick Douglass, and mm-hmm. he talks about, you know, so he in the so he writes his narrative, uh, his slave narrative. Um, and throughout, it can look like he's being very harsh on religion itself. Mm. So he's concerned. So he writes an appendix. And in his appendix, he explains... My problem isn't with religion in and of itself. Mm. It's the religion of this land. Yes. And he talks about how there's the widest possible difference between the religion of this land and the Christianity of Christ. Right. Yes. Um, and so I think that that is a, a challenge that um, many of us have had to navigate for a very long time. Mm. Um, and must continue to do that. Right. And to differentiate and to say um, and to name and identify the ways in which um um, the Bible and Christianity is being used to bolster and justify all kinds of oppression, exploitation, um, systems that are death dealing, right? Mm. Um, and so when we, we can go to scripture, and I mean, the irony is that most of scripture, Israel is the small fish in a big pond, right? That's right. With Egypt and Babylon yeah. and Assyria and Persia and the Roman Empire, all these empires, yeah. and they're constantly on the underside of it. And most of scripture, not all of it, but most of it is written from that vantage point. Um, and certainly then to see that, to see Jesus as a first century Palestinian Jew, right, mm. living under Roman occupation, mm. um, and then to turn around and look at the United States and all the stuff that goes on and continues to be justified. Um, um, it does, it creates a, a great, I mean, it's a, it's actually a devastating critique. Yes. <laughs> if you actually begin to take yeah. Jesus seriously, right? Mm. A devastating critique, and it unveils, um, I think, who we are as a people and the ways that we've kind of lost sight of of God's reign and what God desires for humans together, life mm. together. Mm. Yeah. 
Would you be kind enough to take a passage of scripture and help us read it to turn the world upside down? Um, in this context where we're often, a lot of us, more comfortable with the courts of Pharaoh or Caesar than in the manger or out in the backwaters of, of Galilee, would you give us an example of what it is to actually take Jesus and his context seriously? Yeah, well, actually, I had a, a, in mind, uh, it's not a Jesus passage, although I can talk about something else as well that, that can hopefully um, illuminate that. But the passage that actually really originally came to mind um, is a passage that in many churches is very commonly known. Hmm. I mean, kind of one of those like Sunday school verses, right? And it's uh, out of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. And it says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Hmm. And what is interesting about this passage is uh, two things. One is... Um, it takes both it takes seriously both people's minds but also their bodies and their embodiment yes. yeah. right and i think um that's something that a lot of western christians have not figured out quite yet um so on one hand i mean if you think about so if you live in a society where you have 400 years of white supremacy um and patriarchy and you know just take for granted capitalistic exploitation of people mm. and you know um, xenophobia, all that stuff, right? Mm. So if, if that's just a part of the everyday life and you internalize that, you're socialized into that, um, then there's a real reason why we need to question, um, I guess, how our, our, our very minds and the ways that we see the world, right? That we can't take for granted that how we see and think about the world is actually a good way of thinking about it. Mm. Um, that, that there's some... Um, I mean, the, we could say decolonizing almost, yes. right? But yeah, even more yeah, yeah. than that, renewing um, that needs to happen in our minds. But then with the embodiment parts, it's that what we do with our bodies actually matters. Yes. Right? And so if race has puppeted and controlled people and told people, this is, um, these are the people you belong with, and these are the people you don't belong with, and these are the spaces you belong, these are the spaces you don't belong, right? Hmm. Um that literally our actual embodiment in the world has been racialized um, in a way that, again, is death-dealing for some, right, and and provides social advantages for others, Um, then this message that we can have a transformed embodiment in the world is a really powerful and, I'd say, dear subversive idea. Yeah. Because it it invites, then, a kind of uh, nonconformity and activism in terms of how we engage our societies and the ways that they that we will refuse, we resist um, mm. falling in line with the kind of everyday uh, status quo lives that people live. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is just one example, I think, where like these passages that, at least in many churches, I think are very common, and yet we fail to even recognize below, the full below depth. Below the surface, right. yeah. Right. And it's, particularly, like, I mean, uh, you're, you're holding a book which has been so whitewashed where it's almost that, um, quote-unquote, normal theology in a university setting is European theology. Right. And um, despite the fact that you are hard-pushed to find a white person, as in a European person, in the Bible, like, I mean, Jesus' own family tree has 
people from Africa in it. He's a Middle Eastern yeah. Palestinian Jew. Yeah. And yet, um, whether you're Asian or African, um, uh, whether you're Eastern European or a First Nations person from around the world, constantly othering of Christianity as if it belonged to, belonged to Europe. Yes. Um, when you read um, Present Your Bodies as a living sacrifice okay. in a context where uh, black people bodies have been sacrificed by empire, what different resonance has that when you mention resistance? Because yeah. I think I hear what you're getting at, but would you make that explicit? Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it is precisely what you just said. It's a living sacrifice, right? Mm. Um, and so, I mean, when you think about the history of slavery and lynching and Jim Crow and the white terrorism all throughout the country, um, it was an imperial sacrifice, yeah. right? Um, death dealing sacrifices. Um, this is in finding ways to find new life, life giving practices. Mm -hmm. Um, but that are, that are, um, resisting, right. Um, that, that our sacrifice is in this new life that's possible. Yeah. Um, experiencing it, encountering it and making it visible for others to participate in also. Yeah. And so it's exciting. I think, um, to when, when you begin to grasp, um, that the imperial sacrifice isn't the only kind of sacrifice, Sacrifices, right? Yeah. Um, there is living ways that we can give ourselves to God, yeah. um, that are pleasing to God. Yeah. Um, and, and that fulfill the way that we've been designed to live in life with others. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really beautiful. Um, and it's precisely, I mean, I think what Christians do then strangely but jesus is because they i call it the cradle to the cross jump right Hmm. jesus was born (laughs) some insubstantial thing details in between and then he died for us yeah right um but it's in the logics of that kind of imperial this death is what matters and they don't understand that the majority of the text is about jesus's life and his Uh teachings and how he engaged others and it's precisely his life that that brought about his death. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's his life and his commitment to life, his commitment to those who are most vulnerable in his, in his world. Mm. Um, and his clashing with the death dealing, you know, establishment of Jerusalem, right. Mm-hmm. Who were, um, he calls a den of robbers exploitation yeah. that's happening. Right. It's his confrontation with that, that ultimately brings about his death. But, but that was just, the inevitable consequence of a life committed, a person committed to life. Yes. And uh, in, in all kind of realms. And so he was, his life was always threatened from the very, his first sermon, his life mm. was threatened because mm. uh, he was so committed to life for everyone. Yeah. Um, in a way that people couldn't imagine at that time because they thought it only belonged. To, well, in that case, that story with Jesus' first sermon, they thought it was just about Israel. Yeah. Um, but for others, it's, you know, it's, uh, for those who are powerful and, and mighty. And so I think that he's really subverting that. Which recovers the cross as confrontation. Yes. Um, when you put it in the context of Christ's whole life. Yes. But while without that, um, the, the cross can be wielded again where we um, read it through the side of crucifiers and not on the side of the resurrected crucified one. That's right. Where um, uh, the, the cross becomes a tool of passivity right. instead of the power, the power. of uh, a life surrendered. Like I, I'm struck, as you were saying this, I'm thinking of Chris Austin's words in his Divine Liturgy that Jesus is 
um, the bloodless sacrifice. Mm. That's that's how the Eastern Church has always talked about Christ's life, that yeah. it was a bloodless sacrifice. And yeah. um, that's, that's a picture of sacrifice, which isn't a sacrifice to the system, no. but it's a resistance to the system and given a life fully over. What, what does that look like in terms of the Anablactivist um, way of reading the text where activism is important? What does uh, Anablactivist reading of the cross and Anablactivist blacktivist uh, activism look like that is um, maybe different to how other activists would engage? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, it's precisely in centralizing the Jesus story, precisely hmm. in that way that sees Jesus's commitment to life, his commitment to uh, manifesting the reign of God hmm. and confronting um, the establishment, right? Um, and it, on one hand, it 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 does demand of us to take some risks, right? Yeah. Um, and to accept consequences for yes. that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that this isn't just you know sitting out on the couch. Like there are consequences yeah. for resisting, um, but the goal is not um, sacrifice. The yeah. goal is new life. The goal uh-huh. is shalom. It's it's um, well-being, right? The mm. flourishing of communities that have been under-resourced and have been uh, crushed for for, de- for decades. Mm. Um, that that's the goal. Um, and so I think we don't have to... Um, like, some people worry that Dr. King was verging on a little bit too much on the redemptive sacrifice. That he mm. leaned a little too heavily in... Um, you know, you could argue back and forth, right? But but I think that that if we see the goal um, is life and life giving mm-hmm. for communities um, and to bring uh, justice, right, into yeah. communities and to uh, restructure or literally restructure society, that there's a possibility that we can actually experience that yeah. um, together um, and invite people. Like for me, I say the animal activism then. Um, its starting point is that kind of grassroots on the grounds response. Not first, mm. not that it's against in, um, top-down lawmaking and policies, but that the starting point is organizing people and inviting them to into the process um, and helping them see their own stake and power in their communities, right? Um, and to, in some ways, make the Jesus story visible, yeah. In the very way that Jesus went about engaging, that we can do that and our neighbors can witness the yes. gospel lived out before yeah. them um, in a way that takes consequences for our actions, but also um, is solely committed to that freedom and liberation for all of us. Yes. <laughs> Instead of a death cult, it becomes a life cult. Right. But um, staking your life on life may lead to your death in a system that is bent on death and profits from death and and runs on death. It's the fuel that feeds the system. Absolutely. um, And if if we're as generous to um, uh, King as we're being to others, that um, his quoting of Gandhi's um, uh, the redemptive nature of suffering, which Mm -hmm. which Gandhi picks up and runs with in a really um, a, a way that wouldn't be exaggerating that he reads it through an ascetic Hindu lens, which is body denying and earth denying and final hope is actually escaping those things. Mm-hmm. Um, while King, his language might be imitating initially, it's not what his life looks like. Right. And even his own personal sacrifice um, uh, to use that language around issues of 
do we defend ourselves with a weapon and his own journey around that that's it it's not the moralistic perfectionism that you hear um somebody reading the sermon on the mount read through the Gita, seeking an asceticism that is in keeping with gurus and swamis it's instead of the the black church tradition as these spirituals um, sing the songs that mean I have dignity yeah. and can see a different vision for myself yeah. in a world that says um, that I have some bodiness, as yeah. King would put it, in a world that tells you yeah. you're nobody. nobody. Right. That, that's that's such a different vision. And I think particularly with um, uh, like our generation and younger who don't spend time with King yeah. and all they get is the public holiday once a year, right. um, we're left with a King who isn't the king of history, he's the king of myths, and he's, how does... um, The nation reforged an image of king... That's right. ...that is palatable so that it can be celebrated alongside July 4th and and, all the national holidays. So we end up with a white Jesus (laughs) and and, and a white king. Like, how does West put it? The Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King. That's Um, right. uh, Instead of who he is in his... I mean, because Malcolm X is meeting with him in secret because he sees something in King's project and King's risk, um, which is uh, more than just um, the the vision and the sense of self that Malcolm is bringing people into awareness of. It's it's actually a program that is seeing real structural change Change. happen, and that's why those secret meetings are happening. If Malcolm has something to learn from Martin... Maybe we do too. And people forget, like, he was on a journey. So, like, they forget he's later in his life. He's talking about, you know, I'm, uh, you're black and you're beautiful, right? Like, yes. he's using that language. Yes. He's wrestling with um, new ways in which people are articulating it, which was not, I mean, previously he'd always talked about Negroes, right? Yeah. And so he's wrestling with, um, with all those things as well. And so, I mean, he's a person who both we can learn from, but he was also learning. Yeah. Um, and that's beautiful. And yeah. I think that very posture of being a learner um, is something that we miss also about King, which is just as important well, as that's, what he teaches that's us. that's fascinating. And yeah. that's so important. I've never really... I loved how you put that in terms of King as a learner. Do you know if he'd lived uh, two more weeks, he was going on a retreat with Thomas Merton mm-hmm. and... Was Dorothy Day going uh, as well? But can can you no Tignat Han? Sorry, not Dorothy Day. Thomas Merton and Tignat Han and Martin King. Hmm. Can you imagine wow. what might have come out, out of, of that, him? Right. At, like, you know, somebody in their mid thirties who is is seeking uh, a more overt way of individual contemplation, not just the contemplation that happens in the communal setting of a worship meeting. What what kind of journey would have that led King on? Um, isn't that incredible? Fascinating. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, you, you mentioned, and that was a beautiful example of you taking a a Jesus way of reading and reading one of Paul's letters, Mm. as opposed to, uh, what a lot of people do where they take Paul's letters and read it on top. Um, you mentioned, uh, and this is only if you've got time, you've already been so generous with us, but you mentioned about taking a a passage about Jesus. Did you still want to do that? Sure. Sure. I'll listen to you all day. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I've, got, I've got to be on a plane Friday. But other than that, like, this is a lot of fun for me. Did you want to? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the interesting passages I, I just find fascinating is Luke 13, and I believe it's verses 31 to about like 35. Hmm. But um, 
But there, Jesus, he's out, you know, in the villages, healing and, you know, helping people. And and a Pharisee comes running to Jesus and is like, yo, Herod wants to kill you. <laughs> you know, and that's his warning, right? Uh, and, um, and Jesus, um, you know, he... Unlike, you know, some people think that, you know, Christianity is all about just submitting to authorities. Right? That's yeah. how they read uh, Romans 13, submit to authorities. Well, Jesus apparently didn't pick up the memo. Yeah. And he responds, he sends a little telegram message back to Herod. And his telegram message is a defiant, in some ways, revolutionary kind of response. Yeah. He says, go tell that fox. Right? Yeah. He calls Herod a fox. Not not particularly uh, most deferential way to respond to yeah. the ruler and the king there. Um, and he calls him a fox. And, and uh, the tradition of that time, fox, it, you know, it could have meant several things. Um, in Jewish literature, sometimes it referred to people who were small figures. Hmm. Um, sometimes some people who were predatorial yeah. and also for folks who were deceptive, yeah. right? Um, none I, of those are compliments. <laughs> I have 11 chickens. And yeah, like yeah, when yeah. I think of foxes, I think yep. of all those things. Yeah, yeah. Little, small, sneaky, yep. picks off picks those off. when no one yep. else is watching. Right. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways, however you take it, Jesus is unveiling Herod for who he is. Huh. Um, for the kind of way that he is top-down um, death-dealing mm-hmm. practices, right? He's already taken out his cousin, John the Baptist, right? Mm. Um, he's known for him and his father were mm. just horrific and oppressive uh, rulers. And if we can pause there for just a second, Drew, because it's, that, it's easy to leave that in the abstract, but you don't live in the abstract. Mm. Um, in terms of what it is that because of who Jesus' family is and growing up not far from a place where the empire of the day slaughtered Slaughtered. on on the hills and capital punishment. Thousands of people were crucified. Jesus grew up with a mum, if we take Luke seriously, who has all this revolutionary poetic poetry that he would have grown up um, being sung over him. Mm -hmm. And to to lose a family member who you get a letter from in jail and then is knocked off, would you take that out of the abstract? And yeah, I mean, yeah. So it's, I mean, it, it, if you think that, so Jesus literally as a young boy would have been around while either maybe it was a little before him, who knows, Mm -hmm. depending on dating, but around the time of his birth, Thousands and thousands of Jews from a town close by were were crucified. Where where his stepdad probably worked as a builder, yeah, yeah. and as a carpenter, he's right. probably up there yeah. working as and, well. And there were known multiple revolts in Galilee. I mean, they were the they were you know very revolutionary, yeah, uh, in response to the empire there. Um, and so that that would have been, I mean, that's the world that Jesus is growing up in. Mm. Um, and to, so he would know people just like, you know, you think about black people knowing folks who were lynched or who were, yeah. I was saying to a class earlier today, um, that, you know, I had a friend whose uncle, this is not even as far ago, who was like, um, tarred and feathered. You know what I mean? Like just that kind of, wow. um, just painful stuff, right? That's the world that Jesus grew up in. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about police brutality and people being killed out on the street, like, this is a Jesus that understands that. Yeah. Um, this is the world that he grew up in. He understands that kind of violence. Mm. And it's just um, how susceptible 
you are, right? Mm. And literally, I mean, so pushing it forward, then literally that's how he dies. He can be grabbed yes. at night. He can be given a, an execution by the state, um, and no one can do anything about it. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the context in which Herod then is um, warning Jesus um, that he's going to kill him, hmm. right? Can do it, has the power to do it. Um, and yet here we see the contrast between how life giving Jesus is the commitment to life, right? He basically sends a telegram and says, calls him a fox. He's not complimenting him. He's not telling him he's sexy or (laughs) or slick, right? He's unveiling him for who he is, um, for the violence that he's engaged in. Um, and basically he says, I'm going to keep working for the reign of God and going, and I'm coming all the way to Jerusalem Mm. and you have to kill me. That's basically, you know, Mm. to sum up his message, right? Um, that's pretty radical and that's pretty powerful, um, to see that model of Jesus. Um, and I think that that can certainly be extremely inspiring. I think for folks who live on the underside of that kind of violence every day. Yeah. Um, and so he goes on and he tells a parable. He talks about these chicks, right? Mm. Um, and usually people don't connect that he just talked about a fox with these chicks um, and how he had yearned to protect them, right? To give mm. them life, for them to experience shalom. But they went running in other ways. So they never trusted um, the way of Jesus. Yeah. Um, but, but that he still, I mean, has this way of peace that he wants for people to experience. Yeah. This shalom, justice, flourishing of communities yeah. um, on the ground, communities that have suffered for a long time, that there's this other vision for, for what is possible for their communities. Mm. And, and he's trying to show us that way. And it's, it's a fascinating critique because, I mean, in response to a fox, you might talk about a real wolf. Or, or position yourself like that, and he uses this positive feminine image of a hen, a hen who whose yes. whose own body covers covers those who come under, That's and right. uh, the these baby chickens, these these chicks are protected underneath the, the, the bodies, yeah. the, the the wings of. Yes. Um, it, it's it's a it's a phenomenal subversion of. Um, uh, not just empire, but the the misogyny of empire as yes, well. Yes. Like Jesus yep. chooses these images that right. um, uh, aren't what people naturally go to when right. they think, "How are you going to challenge empire?" Right. It's it's yeah. um, and I, I also yeah. and I mean maybe I should have realised this a long time ago, but it was only two years so back where um, I'm I'm preaching and preparing for a sermon. I realised that. Jesus' mates, in terms of his disciples, their parents have all named them for revolutionaries. Mm. Like oh, several of them, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, um, uh, in terms of um, uh, Simon and Judas Maccabeus, yeah. like, um, the, these are names of violent revolutionaries. revolutionaries. And so, um, yeah. th- these are um, young blokes from the rough areas of town yeah. who have been named for archetypes of, of violent resistance. Yeah. And yet they're following around this fella who is using images of hens to sum up something of his revolution. And yet it's going to cost his life, but not in some um, uh, passive, like laying my life down to the system, but a life fully surrendered to the God. And his like sheer trust in resurrection, like it's, it's phenomenal in how, current and how visceral it becomes when 
it's it's allowed to speak out of its own context to our own context. Yeah. It's so challenging. Yeah. And there's no question that, I mean, the other, so because I was thinking about, you're talking about like the misogyny, right? Mm. And the, um, thinking about when Jesus says, you know, they went in all different directions rather than coming to him. Mm. Um, you know, every single one of the gospel narratives talks about Barabbas. Every yeah. single one. Yeah, Even yeah. the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all are consistent that he was, that he wasn't just some crazy serial killer, right? No. That how, that's how sometimes he gets depicted, yeah. just randomly killing people, sinful person, right? No, he was an insurrectionist, yeah. right? He participated in the resistance. Yes. Um, and, and so in the gospel of Matthew, when it really articulates this tension between Jesus and Barabbas, um, it's really talking not about, um, you know, yeah, like this sinful way versus you yeah. know the Jesus you know saving us from our sins. Yeah, it's the kind of resistance yes, that we're going right. to be engaged in. Yeah, it's that's what it, that's what it's really getting down to. Yeah, it's the kind of resistance. Mm. Um, neither of them are pacifist or, or um, passive. Yes, neither of them are apolitical postures. Yeah. Um, Jesus takes very seriously the conditions in which people are experiencing, mm. um, but it's the kind of resistance. And so you go back then and think about him inviting them again to, to it's the way of life. Yeah. Um, and do we have the vision to, to see the way of life um, yeah. and what's possible? Yeah. yeah. I, I had this fascinating experience in 2015 of going back to where my dad is from mm. and um, dad migrated to Australia in the mid, 70s mm-hmm. and being in a Irish Catholic neighborhood in Belfast where the tour of the family's home is this is where your second cousin was shot by the British police mm-hmm. um this mural and they they're all celebrating the IRA and all the, and meeting young people who look like me who have the same stature as me but whose life story is like a million miles away from mine um uh, because of the poverty and because of the discrimination and because of and, uh, I mean, how f- faith plays into that, or not faith, but organised religion plays into that in yeah. Northern Ireland is is really confusing. And the tour included things like, um, so this is your the pub where um, your dad's grandfather was blown up in. Um, mm. But he... He he lived another month in intensive care, and it was a point of pride that he didn't he didn't die <laughs> straight away. But these aren't abstract. I mean, they can yeah. seem abstract for those of us who. Um, have the shades of me and have traded in our stories um, for the, the benefits of amnesia to oppress other peoples where you become a default in a society, yeah. like in the, the nature of white supremacy. But for those of us who are seeking to repent of our amnesia and actually honour um, the stories as confusing and convoluted as they are, what uh, what would your altar call look like um, for... What does an anablactivist altar call looks, look like for those of us who... Um, uh, whiteness names the uh, oppression of others that I can benefit from when I refuse to do the work and refuse to own the stories. How, how does that sound in the pulpit and what does it look like for me to come forward when the doors of the church are open? Yeah. Wow, great question. Um, wow. Probably depend on what text I'm preaching from that day. but uh, <laughs> No, but I mean, I, for me, it 
It really is comes down to the very basic invitation of discipleship. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you could say one of the most constant themes throughout all of the New Testament is this invitation to follow Jesus, to yeah. to repent, that is to turn away from um, the life that you have lived, your commitments, maybe your social position, mm. um, the way that your life is organized um, with others, um, to walk away from that and towards Jesus. Um, it sometimes is described with come follow me. Sometimes it's imitate me as I mm. imitate Christ, mm. participate in the life of Jesus, mm. follow in his footsteps. Um, but in any of those, you know, and many other ways that it's talked about, but um, I guess, you know, for folks who have always been complicit in participating in systems that have been death dealing to others Mm. um there's this invitation this really powerful great invitation that there's new there's other ways to do life Mm. that are not only um not only life-giving for others but it actually is more life-giving for yourself as well (laughs) right that i mean i i I guess you know when you begin and i get it like i've i've heard people struggle with oh I struggle with being white and what that means, right? Because of the legacy of all these things that my people have done to others. Um, I get struggling through all that. And guess what? New life is possible. Um, And I think that that is the invitation. And that is what is exciting um, to that. But I think um, people need to see that embodied. Mm Mm-hmm. And lived out in their communities, right? Mm. From neighbors and stuff. Yeah. And so, I mean... I mean, if I was preaching, that's the invitation. But I think if I'm um, if I'm trying to witness to my neighbors, it's it's them seeing that in my actual life. Yes. You know, there's a story. Maybe this will wrap it. This will pull it together a little better. There's a story of Dr. King that I think is rarely talked about. Um, he um, it's while he's in Birmingham. And things are faltering and things are not going well. And there, a bunch of leaders are in um, a hotel room arguing and debating what they should do next. And everyone's got their opinion, you know, because they're running out of funds. There's not the support. Some people are like, yo, we just dropped the whole thing. Others are saying, uh, you know, we need to go raise some more support. Let's get Mm. on the road. But now the big issue was that Easter weekend is coming up. Yeah. And for a lot of these folks, they're pastors. They need to be, you know, they're expected to be in their pulpits preaching, right? Celebrating. It's a big deal in a lot of black churches. And so, so there. And a a boycott around that time when everybody wants to buy a new hat. Right. When everybody wants to buy a new successful. That's right. And so there they are. They're debating. They're arguing. And King is not saying a word. He's just sitting there quietly. Hmm. He's letting them talk. Eventually he gets up, leaves the room. They keep discussing, debating, arguing what the next strategy is going to be. Now, if you can imagine a picture of King, usually you, you see him um, with a, a, a black plain mm-hmm. suit, white shirt, mm-hmm. black tie, nothing fancy, right? But just a kind of, mm-hmm. you know, he was trying to seem respectable, but, yeah. but not like over the top, right? Yeah. That was kind of his style. Well, that's how he went into the room. A few minutes later, he comes back out, opens the door, and he's changed his clothes. Yeah. Now he's got blue work shirt on and blue jeans yeah and what does he do he's signifying right we're not going to the service this this 
coming Easter, this Passover, we're going to celebrate it by embodying the story, right? Wow. Um, so my invitation then would be, let's all put on our blue jeans, Come right? On. Let's put on our blue jeans and work for justice. Let's mm-hmm. put on our blue jeans um, and be the hope that people need to see. Yeah. Let's put on our blue jeans and strive together, struggle together for the mm. reign of God, for what's possible for our communities so that we can flourish. Mm. Um, and so I think there's this is great opportunities for us to... Um, glean and learn from others that have gone along the way um, and to to catch the invitation and join in on what's happening oh, and what man. God is doing. Oh, man. Drew, that'll preach. Yeah. That's a great story. <laughs> hey, thanks for your time. And I'm deeply appreciative, not just of your scholarship, but your discipleship, the, the way that you put on the blue jeans mm-hmm. and um, for uh, that not just being in the seminary, uh, but also in the streets and the sanctuary. And um, I'm deeply appreciative of that. And uh, I'm so glad we're hanging out in person and we get to share that with others as well. Um, you have a brilliant book, which I was honoured to in- endorse. Um, do you want to quickly tell people about that and where they can find you if they want to go deeper in anaplactivism? Yeah, yeah. So my book is called Trouble I've Seen changing the way the church views racism and just as a short it's a book that um tries to engage the church and christians around the racism that is uh so prevalent in our society help them think about it from a critical standpoint mm. but then also wrestle with the christian resources that we have in a kind of jesus-shaped way of responding to it and i just i get vulnerable at times tell a lot of personal stories mm. um that i think will be helpful for people to kind of um, navigate this racialized society that we live in and the violence that we see every day. Hmm. Um, so you can find that anywhere books are sold, really online at least. Um, um, yeah, Herald Press is the um, the publisher, so you can get it directly from them, but you can also get it through Amazon and all the other kind of um, places as well. Hmm. And on Twitter, you can find you through the people I follow. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, other places online that people can... Yeah, so yeah, Drew Hart, D-R-U-H-A-R-T, that's my Twitter handle, Um, but you can find me technically on Christian Century, though I haven't been writing much over there, but I am there, (laughs) I technically have a blog over there, Um, you can also find my older stuff at DrewGIHart.com, there's a blog, and then you also find me just all over the place, different splatterings of stuff. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, thanks mate, I really appreciate it. Hey everybody, David here. Just wanted to make you aware of some of the things that are happening in our world. Namely, that on the 23rd to the 25th of August, Jared is going to be speaking at Cornerstone Church in Perth with our dear friend, Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel. Following that, on the 31st of August to the 1st of September, Jared and I are both going to be at the Spark National Gathering in Sydney, where we will be recording a live episode of the Inverse podcast with rapper, artist and poet, Propaganda from sunny LA. And finally, Lisa and Jared are going to be speaking at the ACC's Community Engagement Conference on the 5th to the 6th of September. So come and say hi if you are in the area. And if not, we can always catch up on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash inverse. Or when you hear our sweet dulcet toned voices on the next episode of the Inverse podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.